Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Hi listeners, welcome back to the latest episode of Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're continuing our exploration of spiritual experiences and epistemology in Mormon thought, or again, the theory of knowledge, and if spiritual experiences can give you anything that could be termed knowledge. And we last time talked about an objection, and today we're continuing with a second one, which you call the objection that spiritual experience lacks cognitive content. So, unbeknownst to me, because I hadn't read this part of the paper last time, I kind of jumped the gun on a lot of these things, and we did talk about some of this already, so we'll just briefly kind of review, but we won't rehash as much, just because we've already gone over some of these ideas. But I'm going to start it out by reading a couple of these quotes, and then we'll do a review of what we talked about last time a little bit. So, you say in this paper, if the Mormon epistemic practice, in fact, results in a non-conceptual knowledge because we remember we talked about how it's a noumenal experience that you can't really start thinking about or then become something else. Anyway, then the criticism is then it's worse than merely interpreted experience. It is meaningless, even if it is self-authenticating, intuitive, and unmediated by concepts, ideas, beliefs, and practices. Such knowledge based on mere feeling cannot be described in objective language. It doesn't convey anything that can be expressed to another no belief at all can come from an experience that is prior to all belief. And you go on, you say, Well, it is a fact that the spiritual experience of the burning in the bosom and the expansion of the mind doesn't convey propositional knowledge in and of itself. It doesn't follow from that, however, that the burning in the heart doesn't stand in a confirmation relation to the truthfulness of the message of the restoration of the gospel. So I had brought up last time the example of if you read the Book of Mormon and then you have a spiritual experience either praying about it or while you're reading, I had brought up that objection. I'm like, well, all you know if you're doing that is that you're having some sort of spiritual experience. You can't necessarily confirm anything that you're reading, any of the particular set of ideas that you're, you know, that you are reading or something like that. Like, it's not conveying to you propositional knowledge saying, like, I'm feeling this feeling, therefore I know that Nephi did build a boat, and that is true, or maybe it does. Let's review what we talked about last time, and then any new light you want to shed on that. Sure. So remember, we're, we're departing from the view that knowledge is grounded on our very being. In Mormon thought, we are eternally intelligences, and one of the essential properties or essential features of an intelligence is that it has knowledge of the truth, and it's just grounded in our very being. However, what's grounded in our being can't be expressed in language. I would follow Kierkegaard in calling the kinds of communications that we receive in these kind of spiritual confirmations an existential communication, so that what we're receiving stands in a confirmation relation to the truth, but isn't a propositional description of the truth, which is a good thing because truth can't be stated propositionally because there would be an infinite number of propositions and in and of themselves, any single proposition would be meaningless without all the others. But I'm going to give an analogy. It's like you look at a compass and it points north. Now, what a compass really is, is ore responding to a magnetic pole. The magnetic pole and the iron ore are not propositions. Nevertheless, they convey knowledge about direction and confirmation of where one is in relation to the pole. It's analogously like that with the experiences that we have when we become conscious of the fact that our entire being is responding, reverberating with knowing in response to a message. Now, when we respond to the message, the most reasonable conclusion is there is something very true about this message. God is in this message and something in my being responds and reverberates to it. But it doesn't mean that I could describe the truth propositionally and accurately. It simply means that what I'm reading, I respond to at the deepest level of my being. And so that's basically where we are. And this objection, well, it doesn't convey propositional knowledge. In a sense, that's true. But in a sense, it's also looking beyond the mark because the message isn't the experience itself. The message is in what it's responding to. 
And so if, for instance, in the Book of Mormon, when it affirms that Jesus is the Christ or that, you know, God is speaking through the book, that is being confirmed. Those are not propositions per se in the Book of Mormon, but that is what's being, in essence, confirmed. But it may be that one also responds in particular to a particular type of passage. I think we all have experiences where we're, we're reading something, for me it's the scriptures, and I read it, and then there will be this deep sense of insight into the nature of the way things really are. For I'll, I'll give you an example. I'm reading Alma 41, and he talks about the things that we send out return to us. Now, this is just another way of stating the law of karma, right? What we reap, we sow. What goes around comes around. I mean, there are many different ways of stating this. But the deep truth of this fact that what we send out returns to us, and it's such an elegant way of putting it. And in fact, his entire sense of justice is based on that, because what he's saying is there's this kind of natural response in the universe to our way of being, the way we treat people, and how we are. It just returns to us, and what we send out just is going to come back to us. And so we gauge our being in the universe by what's being sent back to us. So I have this incredible response to this at a very deep level. It doesn't necessarily tell the Book of Mormon is true, but this particular principle was something that reverberated with me. When I'm reading about 3 Nephi 11, when Christ comes to the Nephites, and I'm having this incredibly intimate experience of Jesus speaking to the Nephites and speaking directly to me as a resurrected being, showing himself in his glory, you know, that kind of an insight, there's this kind of encounter, this interpersonal relationship that's involved in my very being. But that's exactly what is being taught. The light of Christ is within us. The intelligence of God, his power and glory and so forth imbue us in, in our very being so that we're endowed in our very existence with knowledge of these kind of things. And it's not propositional knowledge per se. It's like if you say, describe your relationship with your wife. I could never encompass my relationship with my wife in any given set of propositions, no matter how long I spoke. The relationship I have with my wife is a lived reality. It's an experiential reality. But it is a reality. doesn't mean it's not true or that it doesn't have value or that it's meaningless, as the objection states. It means that it's a different kind of truth known through experiential being in the world. And that's the response, I believe that is best given to this type of an argument. You give an analogy in the paper that I like you say, perhaps a fair analogy is in the experience of a baby that hears its mother's voice. The voice is known as familiar, loving, and already within one's experience. Babies know the voice already from being in utero. However, the recognition is not a rational or conceptual recognition. Babies are not conscious of the recognition of the voice, and they don't reflect on their knowledge of the voice in consciousness. The baby doesn't know how it recognizes the voice it just does and you draw a parallel between that and the scriptures when jesus says that the sheep will recognize the voice of the shepherd right it's an analogy that was already used by jesus we all have this kind of an experience we hear a person's voice and there's a certain tenor and modulation and knowing when we hear a voice, we know whose voice it is. but there's more than that too when we hear a voice we know whether the voice is angry whether it's conveying love we know the voice in its nuances. And so it's not just whatever wavelength we're hearing. There's this kind of interpersonal recognition in recognizing a voice and in recognizing what's being conveyed in the way that the voice is being presented. It's not conceptual. And the reason I use this analogy is that certainly the sheep don't have a, they, they do recognize the voice of the shepherd. They'll follow it. And, you know, an inexperienced shepherd knows that. I'm not an experienced shepherd, but I happen to know that sheep recognize the voice of the shepherd and, and gravitate toward it. But it's not because they're smart and recognize the propositional truth that it is the shepherd who's speaking and, and they're going to be protected if they just step close to the shepherd. They recognize the voice experientially, and it's a non-propositional kind of a recognition on their part. And, you know, it's not really mediated by concepts. There's not a concept of the voice. It's an experiential kind of knowledge. So I think it's a very good analogy and one that's directly scriptural that the Savior gave to us. For this first section, this is the one we've probably covered a lot, so I'll just do a skimming of it. You can say whatever you want, but we've already gone over this one, I think. But anyway, you ask, how are we aware of, of noumenal experience? Which again is, I guess, review if you haven't been following. The noumenal, as opposed to phenomenal, is this idea that Immanuel Kant, a philosopher, put forth saying the noumena are things as they actually are, regardless of our experience of them. Like a box, for example, exists, whether you're looking at it or not, whether you're thinking about it and cognitizing it, you know, whether your mind's making sense of it. But then there's the phenomenal, which is your experience of the box, and that's how you become aware of it, but you're interpreting it already, and so the box is not necessarily how the box actually is, it's just your interpretation of it. 
But now we're talking about the spiritual experience being a noumenal experience. So it's asking that question, how are we aware of that? So you, you go on in the, in the paragraph to say, how could I be conscious of the burning in the heart at the core of my being if somehow the experience is not mediated through the categories? Conscious noumenal experience is a contradiction because there is no noumenal experience of which we could possibly be conscious because the phenomenal world mediated through the categories is given in the act of becoming conscious. So I'll just read these all those quotes and then you can say what you want about it. So And that's kind of the idea from Immanuel Kant. And you say, I believe that Kant is fundamentally correct about the perception of sensible data, which is what we're talking about with the phenomenal experience. But the knowledge that resides in our hearts, and again, not our physical hearts, but like, you know, that our core of our being, is not sensible data, even though it is analogous to the senses. Further, I don't accept Kant's claim that the categories are the logically exhaustive and necessary condition for conscious experience. You say, I can be aware of knowing at my very core, in the burning of my heart, in response to the truth that is manifest. I can be conscious that I am experiencing myself knowing the truth in my response to the truth, because it is given in a datum of my conscious experience, even though the experience itself is not an object of sensible cognition. We clearly have non-cognitive experiences of which we are conscious. The complex of feelings, conative experiences, and emotions are also such experiences of which we are often conscious. I guess we'll stop there for a second. So are you saying that feelings come on without us examining them? Or how? what's the parallel between like just random feelings and this experiencing a noumena? We don't create the feeling, and we don't organize this feeling into existence it's given in the very datum of coming into consciousness but a part of the datum of our consciousness is precisely this sense of knowing that's given in the data that is part of our conscious experience and so the data is that of knowing in our very being but one can't convey the knowing in one's own being to another individual because that would entail that i'm conveying the knowing in my being to another being which is impossible so what we're talking about in a noumenal experience is it's given in my very existence. It couldn't possibly be otherwise. But I can't really bring it into a phenomenal kind of a discussion where I convey that knowledge to you. I can talk all about it. I can propositionally describe the experience and you still don't. If I gave you every single proposition that were true about the experience, you still would not possess the knowledge that I have in my being, which is to say that it's not propositionally conveyable. It's a different kind of knowledge. And so the fact that we have a noumenal experience, we recognize that it's a requirement of the very givenness of our existence. I couldn't have experience at all unless I existed. And the kind of experience that I'm having, I couldn't have at all unless this kind of knowing were already present in my existence. That's the kind of assertion that I want to make in propositional form. One can see that it's logically necessary, but I still haven't conveyed the knowledge itself. I've simply conveyed the reason that the conditions for the knowledge are not ruled out by the fact that the experience is noumenal or given in our being. So I can't convey the knowledge. I can talk about it all I want, but I can overcome this objection by showing that it's logically necessary because it's given in our being as a datum of experience, as a necessary condition of our very experience. It's like the lens. Remember, go back to the lens analogy. I never see the lens of my eye, but I realize by seeing, I'm looking through the lens of my eye because it makes seeing possible. It's in the same sense that I become aware of knowing because it's grounded in my being, and my being is the lens, and I, I'm not experiencing the lens, I'm experiencing through it. And so what I'm doing is, is this knowledge is grounded in my being in the sense that if I see something, I know that I have a lens, and if I experience this, I know that this knowledge is grounded in my being. All right, and then talk a little bit, if you will, you don't have to go into it too much, but in the book you kind of go through how Kant had this view of uh, phenomenal experience or the, his theories about phenomenon how they are seem to be linked to what I guess we'd call in modern times like the scientific determinism of the phenomenal world meaning everything is determined by the senses or by the you know unconscious things that we're applying to reality but then he also believed in libertarian free will which is required if you have real morality you know that in any situation you could choose other or you have options, basically, at any moment. So how did Kant reconcile this, or did he? Well, there's a debate among Kantian scholars whether he, in fact, reconciled it. I think he did successfully reconcile it. And it's the same way that we reconcile noumenal knowledge 
that cannot be expressed phenomenally, but is nevertheless real knowledge. So when we look at the phenomenal world as we experience it, we infer causes. We don't experience causes. We never see a direct cause. We just say there's A and there's B, and they're always related to each other because B always follows A. So I have this relationship, and it's law-like. It happens every single time, and so I infer that A is the cause of B because B can't be present unless A is present, and whenever A is present, it causes B to be present. We don't experience a cause. We infer it. And in order to make sense of our experience, we have to infer these kinds of causal regularities. But they're not real in the world. There are mere phenomenal inferences, is what Kant would say. And the fact is, is that in the groundedness of our being, we in fact make choices. We experience ourselves directly making choices. And so in the givenness of the fact that we make choices, and you can't say, oh, you know, how do I explain the fact that I make a choice? It's basic. I just do it. <laughs> how do you explain the fact that you make choices? Well, what do you do when you make a choice? Well, well, I just make a choice. It's just a basic power that I have to make choices. I look at various possibilities and I choose one. Well, I make choices, but I also exist as a fact in the world. I am a noumena in my groundedness in the world. And so given the fact that I'm a noumena, I know that in the actual world, there are choices being made because I'm doing it. Pragmatically, you couldn't make sense of life at all if you approached it as if though everything were determined and every choice were already determined. So you just sat around and waited for the causes to determine what your choice would be. That would be nonsense. Nor could you wait around and try to figure out what the causes dictate. All you can do is choose. You can exercise this basic power and pragmatically you can't do it any other way. The world makes no sense in terms of, a, of an actual causally determined world. Because in your givenness, you exercise this basic power, and you know you exercise the basic power, given in the fact that you're doing it. So what Kant would say is that given our facticity in the world, given the noumenal reality that's, that we are in the world, we have this basic power of choosing and therefore have this kind of moral accountability. But in the phenomenal world, we can't see those choices. We can't make sense of them because, for instance, you can't say, oh, you made a choice. Is there some kind of a precondition that always exists before you make a choice so that your choice is caused by this prior condition? And the answer is, of course not. That just can't be the case. <laughs> we don't see that kind of thing ever. And that's because Kant would say there is no such prior condition, or is there sufficient prior explanation? You can't explain what people will freely choose with great accuracy. You can look at what their proclivities are, but it used to be that every chance I got to eat candy, I ate candy. But now I'm aware how bad it is for my health. I don't do it anymore. In any event, that's how Kant reconciled free will, and it's based upon the very same kind of distinction between the, the noumena and the phenomena that I make in epistemology. What Kierkegaard did was realize what Kant was doing, and he also based his epistemology, if you will, he would never call it an epistemology, but he based his epistemology on the same kind of noumenal phenomenal distinction. So that it is our groundedness in the world, our authentic being given in the world that is the basis of our existential communications and knowing. Those are Kierkegaardian terms. And that's how he expressed it. He just followed Kant the same way I did. The second question here is, you ask, how could post-conceptual language expressed in a publicly available dialogue be known to be true subjectively? So you might need to rephrase that for me in a second, but here's how I kind of understood what you're getting at here. You give the example of written revelation. How do spiritual experiences that you're talking about translate into things that we have like in the scriptures, like into coherent sentences? If the spirit communicates to you through, you know, this noumenal unconscious, I mean, you're conscious sort of of it, but like it's not through your senses, then how do you then translate that into things like written words that you can say are from God? Is that what you're meaning by this first part? Yeah, if it's, if it's non-conceptual, how do you put it into propositional concepts like the kinds that we find in the scriptures? And so, yeah, that's what we're going to be talking about here. But you give this dramatic example, you say, of the relation between hearing the voice and then discerning what that voice is actually saying, or the burning of the message in the heart, or so forth. And that's a scene from the Book of Mormon in Third Nephi when Christ is appearing to the Nephites. And so, I guess for some context, like, you know, at the death of Christ, there's great destruction in the land, and then basically everything's in ruins, and the sky's dark, and everyone's in this darkness. And then, I guess, people come out and they start talking to each other. I'll just read this real quick, and we can talk about it. So, it says, And it came to pass that while they were thus conversing with one another, so I guess there's a bunch of people talking to another, they heard a voice as if it came out of heaven, 
and they cast their eyes round about, for they understood not the voice which they heard, and it was not a harsh voice, neither was it a loud voice, nevertheless, and notwithstanding it being a small voice, it did pierce them that did hear to the center, insomuch that there was no part of their frame that it did not cause to quake. Yea, it did pierce them to the very soul, and it did cause their hearts to burn. And it came to pass that again they heard the voice, and they understood it not. And again the third time they did hear the voice, and did open their ears to hear it, and their eyes were towards the sound thereof, and they did look steadfastly toward heaven from whence the sound came. And behold, the third, ti the third time they did understand the voice which they heard, and it said unto them, Behold my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, in whom I have glorified my name. Hear ye him. So, you say, doesn't this quote from Third Nephi, in fact, show that the spiritual experience characterized as a burning heart cannot be merely subjective because it was shared by a, a great number of people? So, there's a bunch of people experiencing this supposed subjective thing that you have been, you know, you've gone over several times saying you can't share that, it can't be understood by another person, but here we have an example of multiple people sharing that experience. So what do you have to say about that? Yeah, so I think that's a very interesting passage. Notice where they're hearing the voice. They're hearing it at the very center of their being. It's piercing them in their very soul and causes their hearts to burn. So how are they hearing it? They don't hear it with their ears. That's the interesting thing. They hear it in their very being, in their hearts. And so this is giving a kind of example of the kind of language I've been talking about about the knowledge that exists in our very being and that is called forth. And then they hear it twice and they don't understand what's being said because they don't know how to hear it. And here's the interesting one. And again, the third time, they did hear the voice and did open their ears to hear it. I think what that means is not their physical ears, but it's like what's used in the scriptures. Ye who have ears to hear, hear what I'm saying. It takes a special kind of ears attuned to the Spirit to understand what's being said. Their eyes were toward the sound thereof, and of course they saw Christ coming out of the heaven. But before he descends, they hear the voice saying, Behold my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, in whom I have glorified my name, hear ye him. So there is this kind of communication that we understand in words that when we become attuned to the nature of what's being conveyed can be put into words. And I think what this shows is that this kind of knowledge can be conveyed in propositional language that's understood to us. Certainly God's capable of doing that. But the hearing is done not with human ears, but with the heart in a way that we understand what the words are. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I remember saying this in a group of philosophers, and they all looked at me like I was just, I should be put in a loony house and, and probably had a straitjacket put on me with padded walls. But I mentioned that when I pray, God immediately speaks back. I, I hear a voice in my mind that pierces me to the soul. And I know, I know this voice. And so I know it can be put into words. But the interesting thing about the words is I'm essentially the one that's assisting in framing the words so that I can understand them. I know what's being conveyed. But the way I'm framing the words in my mind is not the only way it could be done. There's an infinite number of ways that I could state the same kind of things I'm receiving. So what I'm talking about here is that knowledge is being conveyed and then we take and put it into words that make sense and that we can hear. Now, the fact that they all heard this voice and that the Nephites were there experiencing this together means that there's enough commonality in the experience that more than one person may be able to have the same experience. Whether they would all put it into the same words, I don't know, because it's Nephi 3 who is, who is writing the account. And he's the one who's putting it into these words. But the fact is, the Nephites are all there. And then they see a, a being coming out of heaven in glorious light, I mean, descend. And so what this is telling us is, is there's this relation now. The minute they see it with their eyes, you know, are they seeing Christ with only spiritual eyes? And I would suggest not, because then they go up and each of them touches them. With The whole point is this becomes a sensible experience. And that's the whole point of the resurrection narratives as well. Jesus is not merely a noumenal experience that is subjectively experienced. Jesus has made himself available to us in his resurrection to be experienced through our senses and also through the core of our being at the same time. And I think that's the point of this entire narrative, because what their experience of Christ isn't, it becomes an experience of the senses. So it may be the third time they heard it, there actually was something that reached their ears, whereas before it didn't reach their ears. It wasn't a sensible experience. 
and then it was translated into a sensible experience of hearing and seeing so that they could convey it and understand it. At least that's the way I read this uh, scripture, which is one of the most powerful to me in, in all of scripture. Are you saying the spiritual experience and what in the LDS tradition we commonly refer to as revelation are the same or similar? Well, what I've asserted is that we have a spiritual sense. So we have a sense that, that functions in us like the Lyahona. It functions in us like a confirming response at the core of our very being. And so we have this extra sense that people don't feel until they soften their hearts and listen in silence. And so they hear a still, small voice that isn't speaking, and it's not a voice, but something that pierces them to the center of their soul that makes their hearts burn. And so the first two times they hear the voice here, they don't hear a voice, they don't understand it, but they certainly are aware that they are experiencing something that pierces them at their very center. And then the voice is transformed into a voice that they hear with ears and they see with eyes, so that what they are experiencing at the core of their being then becomes a sensible experience through the other senses. And they all went forward, every single one of them, and, and touched Jesus' resurrected body. The, the point of the entire story is that what began in this numinal sense then became a sensible experience so it could be expressed. How does that relate to like scriptures and stuff like that that we were talking about? Well, what I'm saying is it's on a continuum. If you receive a revelation, you may not be absolutely certain. You may even hear a voice like I do speaking to you, but the way that it could be phrased and the best way to phrase it or whether you're phrasing it accurately is not always certain. It's limited by our abilities to understand, by our vocabularies and so forth. This then turns into my theory of revelation that we've already discussed, remember? So that revelation is never the ultimate last propositional statement of the truth. It can always be stated in different ways and maybe in different ways that would be more accessible or more culturally relevant. And so the spirit, when it, it speaks to us, speaks in a way that is very basic in our experience. And then we take and translate it into words that make sense in public language. Okay, makes sense. And I knew that. I was just kind of leading you along there so that you could yeah, add. <laughs> and we've discussed, if, they, if those listening want to go back and listen to the expansion theory of the Book of Mormon, where we express and talk about this theory of revelation. Remember, we call it the co-participation theory of revelation. All right, and then, see, we've already given that gelato example in the last pad podcast, so we'll probably skip that now, but... We also talked about Wittgenstein and the hinge propositions. So. I guess we talked about like a noetic structure and whatnot. Right, and linked gates. So we've discussed about that. What we have discussed are the realist versus anti-realist conceptions of truth. What was the language game just for my remembering? The language games is we exist in a culture, and the culture basically teaches us the rules of using language. And the terms have the terms that they mean in that specific type of a culture. It's like playing a game. We learn how to play the same game with each other. But the game will change. I mean, the kinds of terms that teenagers are using now are different than the kinds of terms teenagers, you know, specialized language that we used when I was a teenager. And so this is a, an ever-evolving kind of a thing. When I was a teenager, if somebody said sick, that meant it was rotten and you didn't want to experience it. Now, in your day, if somebody said, oh, that's truly sick, that meant it was wonderful. And so, you know, the, these kind of language games change, but you have to be a part of the culture to know that. If you're learning English and you heard some and you hear somebody say that's sick, I, I think you would look at him and think, I think he's saying it's rotten and I shouldn't really get close to that. Yeah, so I mean language does especially in like just kind of a worldview or what you're able to comprehend plays a large role. I was on my mission in Ukraine and they speak Russian and the name of their church, if you translate it, is basically the correct church. So it's like, well, there there you go. It's right in the name. The correct church. I'm like, well, that that's an interesting way that your culture has framed the name of your church as the correct church. But No, I think it's a great thing to do. It's this kind of the same thing as the only true and living church. And, you know, we name our church the Church of Jesus Christ. It's like, well, no doubt who our church is. You know, we're really the church that belongs to Jesus Christ. So the rest of you Christians, you know, suck eggs. Oh, uh, yeah. True. <laughs> All right, well, let's get into this part that, like you said, we haven't covered yet. So there's two conceptions of truth. One is a realist and one's anti-realist. So I guess briefly just kind of explain what both of those views are. I'm going to give a nuance of, of realism and anti-realism. Realism is just the view that things exist apart from you, even when you're not experiencing them. There are things in and of themselves, just as Kant said. There are two forms of anti-realists. There are anti-realists who are like postmodernists. You know, they're following Hegel and those that 
developed postmodern thought after Hegel, who don't believe that there's even a sufficient basis for affirming that there is a mind-independent world apart from our experience of it. We can't really talk about it. All we can really talk about is the interrelationship of the words that we use. They're very reductivist. They are incredibly skeptical. And so the kind of postmodern philosophy that gets done is kind of a discussion of literature and the way that works. And we can talk about that, but we can't even approach the truth. And that's because it doesn't make sense in human language to actually address the noumena. They recognize that. The real question is, do they deny that there's a noumena, that it's actually there? And some of them may, but my experience in that, if I actually kind of start pinning them down, is they actually believe there's a thing in and of itself. It's just that we can't, you know, reasonably speak about it. And so it's nonsense to try to talk about it or to suggest that we could even suggest that it's there. The best we can do is work with language the way we have. So we all become basically linguists and literature experts. and That's all there is to philosophy. And really, that's how I assess postmodern philosophy. It's a bankrupt view of, you know, a theory of truth. An anti-realist generally isn't a person who denies that there's something real. They're just people who deny that we can reasonably speak about it. In my view, I'm anti-realist with respect to public discourse regarding the truth or spiritual experiences. Remember, I've said numerous times, you can't convey the knowledge that we have in our existential being to another being. It can't be done. It can't propositionally be conveyed. However, that doesn't mean that we don't subjectively possess such knowledge. So my view is that of a critical realist. Propositionally, I can't describe the truth to you, but there is such a truth, and it can be known. And so I'm not the kind of skeptic that postmodern philosophers are, and I think the Mormons ought to be very skeptical of postmodern theorists or theorists following a lot of the continental philosophy. I'm very critical of that kind of approach to Mormonism because I think it's bankrupt and leads us to nothing but generalities and the kind of thing that you would get out of, oh, we all have these shared commitments that we have. What's an example of like the postmodern anti-realist thing? Like it sounds from what you're saying, like the idea of moral relativism would fall under that. Is that somewhere in that school of thought? Yeah, there is no more realism you can speak of. So what postmodern philosophy has really devolved into is kind of a philosophy of political power and power structures. It's really become kind of what I would call a, a very progressive, by progressive I actually mean regressive, view of things because all it focuses on are power structures and how we relate to one another. It kind of reduces itself to a political philosophy, and that's where it at least has gone recently. And I'm not real interested in that kind of thing because I think all it is is people making empirical assertions about the way things are without any evidence to support their empirical assertions. They use anecdotal kinds of statements. And when I look at it, you know, they want to make these kind of very broad totalizing statements. And it's like, I thought that's exactly what you were rejecting, but that's what the kind of thing they want to discuss. But there are a number of philosophers in that tradition I don't want to get into it too far. I will say that there are people at BYU who promote this kind of a thing. And I think the people at BYU who promote this kind of thing just don't understand the kind of actual religion that they belong to. So that's kind of my response. Okay. And then next we're going to talk about what you, I don't know if you term it, but it's termed Kierkegaardian subjectivity. And so again, this is from the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who you seem to like a lot because we talk about him a lot. But I'm going to read a quote from him and then... We need to talk about it because it sort of made sense to me, but sort of not, too. So you put a quote from him that you say, He asserts, Subjectivity is the truth by virtue of the relationship subsisting between the eternal truth and existing individual. The paradox came into being. Let us now go further. Let us suppose that the eternal essential truth is a paradox. How does the paradox come into being? By putting the essential truth into juxtaposition with existence. Hence. We posit such a conjunction within the truth itself. The truth becomes a paradox. The eternal truth has come into being in time. This is the paradox. So what does he mean? Well, what he's saying is, if I try to put what is truth into the reality as we experience it in time, and time is the basis of experience for Kierkegaard, it's all that we try to talk about the noumenal by using our phenomenal experience of it that we have failed to understand the distinction between the noumena and the phenomena, okay? So what he's saying is we really can't address the noumena through language. We can't do it. So the truth is subjectivity. The truth is grounded in our being through an existential communication, according to Kierkegaard. 
but it's not something that we can put into time. That is, it's not something that we could put before people to experience based upon what we've experienced. Our experience cannot be the basis of their own experience of their own givenness in reality. That is a paradox, and there's no way to overcome it. So the paradox is precisely the distinction between the noumena and the phenomena and confusing the two so that we can discuss the phenomena as if though it were the truth that we were discussing in our phenomenal language. So I guess everyone can agree on this. So truth is, as Jesus said, what is truth is kind of a slippery thing because all truth is kind of subjective, at least a truth of an experience. For example, like if there's an event... And like you said, if I guess, you know, you went back and talked to each of the Nephites that were there when Christ came and you asked them to describe the experience, they'd all probably describe it. Maybe, you know, they might get the factual data somewhat similar, but, you know, when they're talking about what they felt or what their experience was, it's going to be different. So reality has to be somewhat subjective just because we are us and we're not anybody else. Is that sort of what he's saying and that basically the truth is going to be subjective because it's only our experience of it that is going to make it? Your groundedness in reality cannot be identical to my groundedness in reality. We're two different distinct beings. And so by disclosing and and discussing with you my groundedness in being, I can't possibly disclose to you your groundedness in being, nor could I convey my groundedness in being. If I try to do it by addressing it directly, I misunderstand what I'm addressing at all. It's a paradox. It is true that I, I have knowledge, but it's also true I can't convey it. So it becomes a paradox when I try to convey it. The fact that it's a paradox doesn't mean that I don't know the truth. It simply means that it's something that can't be conveyed because it's always paradox in this sense. More importantly, what we're talking about with Kierkegaard is basically that I've talked in the past about the fact that Kierkegaard uses indirect communications by conveying through a, drawing a picture, a word picture, if you will, of the kinds of things that are experienced given different stances in life. And to kind of paint a picture of the way things will look, Kierkegaard is saying that a person who has true faith, they called the knight of faith, like Abraham, somebody who actually hears God and follows him, that kind of a person is always going to be, on one level, just simple nonsense, and on another level, just ethically abhorrent. Because if we have ethical rules with an ethical theory, then we've reduced the given reality of the ethic that exists into a rulemaking type of a a game. And the person's always going to run afoul of those kinds of rules every single time, just like Abraham did. So what Kierkegaard is doing is saying that what a Christian is called to be is authentically grounded in being. And by grounded in being, he's also saying he's being called to be in Christ as the ground of our being in a shared relationship and experience so that his life is actually in us. And in that sense, the Christian can understand the ground of being. Our ground of being is a shared existence with Christ if we're truly Christians. That kind of thing can't be shared with anybody else. It's it's given for us only. So truth is subjectivity, according to Kierkegaard, because it's grounded in the very facticity of our being in the world existentially. Every word I just said has a lot of meaning. Every word I said is pregnant with meaning. And it's important to grasp that we're speaking phenomenally. Now I'm trying to explain phenomenally what we can only say to people, come and see for yourself and experience it for yourself, so that you are now grounded in your own being and you know, that will be the basis of your knowledge, and I can't convey it to you, and I can't give it to you. But it will involve necessarily the interpersonal relationships that you're in, and especially the love that you experience with God. All right, and then let me read this and then ask you a question about maybe what it means. So you also state, you say, I want to make it clear, just in case what you've said is completely escaping the reader, that Kierkegaard does not advocate that something is true just because it is believed passionately. And I want to juxtapose that with this quote earlier that I didn't read from Wittgenstein, and he says, when he's talking about, he's trying to understand what a religious belief or experience is, he says, it strikes me that a religious belief could only be something like a passionate commitment to a system of reference. Hence, although it's Belief, or the, hence, although it is belief, it's really a way of living, a way of assessing life. It's passionately seizing hold of this interpretation. So when he says that, it kind of makes me think that it's like, well, religion is just a 
a worldview that you're seeing the whole world through. You're you're deciding that it's this. So what would Kierkegaard? Yeah, he's saying something very different. He's saying essentially the same thing Kierkegaard is. Let me explain why. Remember what he's saying is not that you have this kind of propositional belief and you attach yourself to it passionately. It's a way of living. It's a way of being in life. It's a way of, it's a particular stance from which you hold an interpretation of life so that it gives you eyes to see and a, a place to stand from which you can interpret and understand reality. It's this kind of passionate commitment in one's being that gives it groundedness from which we can actually have a point of view. Now, it will only be one point of view. It will be limited by the fact that we have the horizons that we do from that point of view. But the fact is, as Kierkegaard is saying, that religion is this passionate commitment that is based on one's entire way of life in the world, not merely on some kind of propositional system. It's not propositional, according to Wittgenstein. What really grounds truth for Wittgenstein are ways of being in the world. So I would think that Kierkegaard would rather resonate with that and say, that's right. When we ground ourselves more passionately in the existential facticity of our being, in our authenticity as a being in the world, then we are in the truth, is what Kierkegaard would say. And I think that Wittgenstein would say, yeah, that's what religion is. Okay, and I guess we won't talk about this because there's a whole another podcast we're going to do on this, but I, it would bring up the question of like, well... It's, you know, a lot of people are doing that and getting this way of looking at the world, but it seems rather subjective again, and there's many interpretations of what that should be. Anyway, we'll, we'll get into that, but I'd, is there any level that you want to address that now without getting into that whole thing? No, because we need the entire structure of my discussion. What you're talking about is my structure of the relationship of various faiths and the, you know, the um, challenge of diversity. And we need to build a structure for understanding when we, because that's a public phenomenon. It's not a subjective phenomenon. Right now we're talking about the subjective individual knowing in, in his own facticity of the world in his heart. That's a different kind of movement than, than resolving the kinds of issues that arise when we're talking about what another okay. knows. Okay, well, we'll get to that then. What we take from that. Yeah. Okay, well then let's move into the fourth and final section, which when I was reading it seemed, well, I was, uh, it started out like normal, but then by the end of it, it almost seemed like you were giving a prayer or a testimony by the end, which was good. I just, I was noticing like, oh. What this is, is kind of a, it begins by discussing what a personal encounter with the thou who is God is, and that will always end in, the, in, a, in a prayer, if you will. Um, at least for me, that's the way it always seems to devolve. All right, well, the title of it is Interpersonal Encounter with a Thou That Precedes and Exceeds Me. And you sub-tag it with a Levinasian, a Levinasian addendum to Buber. So, Manuel Levinas is another philosopher, and Martin Buber is a philosopher. So you're saying if you're kind of taking their thoughts and putting them in dialogue with one another here. So, let me read a couple quotes and then we'll get into this a bit so you say if by knowing or sorry if i know by becoming subjective and looking inward to my particular concrete existence as a noumenon then how do i experience anything outside of myself how does the experience give any knowledge of a reality that is independent of myself if subjectivity is truth as we just discussed then how does it point to God, who certainly cannot be reduced to my subjective experience? Because he's greater than just me, so I can't, you know, I can't do that. So, first, we, you talk about this, I, I guess it's a philosophical idea called solipsism, which is... Solipsism is the view that I exist all by myself and that everybody else is merely one of my ideas and my experience of them is merely a subjective. I can't determine whether they live in the world because they're just a trick of my brain or I've created them and they just exist for what they are. Maybe I'm having a totally, you know, a, a total mirage of all of my experience like we discussed before. And maybe, you know, every single person is just my delusion when I hallucinate. I mean, I'm, I'm sure everybody at some point has had that thought cross their mind. At least I'm like, you know, what if, what if no one else, I mean, because you can't know, you know, just like you said, we're, all, our, all our experience is subjective. So it's like, what if everyone else isn't really here and this is all, you know, a dream or something like that or something like a dream and I'm the only real thing? 
but obviously you can't live like that. But anyway, that movement's called solipsism. Is that what I, is that how you say it? Solipsism, is that how you say it? <laughs> I mean, I would say it's almost related to being a sociopath, although I, I'm sure they acknowledge other people. But like, you know, it's like, well, no one else matters. Everything else is just here for my use and for me alone. So therefore I can use these objects that aren't really things and do whatever I want. Anyway, I'd say like that would lead to that in my, where I went with reading about that idea. Anyway, you say that's, you know, it seems to be kind of pointing to that if you say subjectivity is truth, but you give three ways in which that can be overcome. So let's go over them and then you can kind of comment on them as we go. So you say first, the heart responds to what is other than. It is preceded by what it responds to. Thus, there is a reality that transcends the subject that calls it out of a self to be a self. So, are you talking about spiritual experiences here or just in, in general? So, remember in the philosophy of Mark Buber, a Hasidic Jew philosopher, when I encounter another person, I don't experience them. If I truly encounter them as a thou rather than a mere thing that is created by me as an object for my experience, then I encounter them because they reveal themselves to me. They precede me in this sense. So what I'm experiencing derives from them revealing themselves to me, and they're logically prior to what I am. In so doing, I'm created as a thou in the experience. This is opposed to the way that we experience things. Only thous can be experienced in the holy wholeness of our being. Only a thou is an encounter by this kind of revelation, where instead of overlaying them, remember we said we have this kind of schema, these categories that we impose on people. So if I meet a person and he reminds me, you know, I see a guy with a beard and he reminds me of a guy who's a child molester and a person who's really evil. And so I immediately judge him and place him into that category. And experiencing him, I'm experiencing him as that kind of a person. I don't even know him. We probably do this almost automatically with everybody that we meet for the first time. Certainly little children do it. If you've ever seen them shying away from somebody, it's because, oh no, mama told me to be scared about that kind of person. But if we encounter a person, we don't overlay them with these conceptual traps that we set up for people. Instead, we let them reveal themselves to us at a very interpersonal level. We encounter them. They reveal themselves to us. How do I explain this? Sometimes we, we meet people and we just connect with them. We know them. It's like we've always known them. And so we have this kind of a connection and they reveal who they are to us. They're fascinating to us. But in, in being in this kind of relationship with this kind of encounter, I'm also created as a thou. I'm not merely a thing having experiences. I'm not merely a brain that's going through the various data of the senses, you know, so that I have all these electrochemical data coming into me and I'm a brain sorting out the electrochemical data. I'm a person and I'm experiencing this person in my wholeness as a person. Instead of just taking some part of them or some aspect of them, I'm taking the entire person into my experience. And so that, in a sense, I'm created in the image of the other that preceded me. So in the I-Thou relation, especially this is what Levinas emphasized, the other logically precedes me, but not merely logically in experience. The other is prior to me to call me out of myself to be a self that I am, to be a thou also. So in this sense, at least, you know, Levinas is also drawing on Buber to some extent, although there's a good deal that Levinas rejects about Buber. But what we're saying is that necessarily what I'm experiencing of the Tao logically precedes me. So I, it, I can't be the only thing in the world because I'm being called out of myself by something that came before me as another. And then second is a longer response, but I'll read it. You say the heart's response is not a conceptuality, not a subjective schema that reduces everything that it encounters to its own confines of comprehension by circumscribing it in a pre-existing schema of, or worldview, which I guess is what you kind of just said, what calls to the heart transcends the subject and calls it out of itself to be in relation. What calls to the heart and to which it responds cannot be reduced to a mere conceptual structure of the subject, and thus the subject is undone in response. So, you quote from Isaiah when he sees Yahweh in the temple, he says, Woe is me, for I am undone. The subject or the person must expand beyond its present confines to touch the other to which it responds. So and I guess you kind of went over that. Well, what I'm saying is that when I truly encounter a thou, the person that I am is in part undone. I'm overwhelmed by it. I'm transcended by this other. And so I'm remade in the image of the other, and I'm remade in the encounter so that I'm now a new being 
different than I was. I'm completely undone by it. The way that Isaiah was, he encounters Yahweh in the temple in Isaiah 6, and it's like, this is just blowing my mind. I can't even make sense of it, okay? I mean, that's a good way of putting it in modern parlance. You're just blowing my mind. I can't even wrap my head around it. These are sayings that we have. Well, in this kind of an experience, we are not trying to subsume a person under some type of, of totalizing conceptual scheme to make sense of them. If you ask me to describe my wife to you, as I said, it doesn't matter how long I talk, I'm not even going to get close to the person that she truly is. The only way you can know my wife is to interact with her, to have dealings with her, to involve her in what you're doing, to sense the sheer goodness of her being, to sense the love that is so natural for her, and to be called out of oneself into a relationship with her. That is done experientially. You can't do that by some schema or conceptuality. All right, then you say, finally, the subjective self is called out of itself to transcend its self. And in this transcendence, to become a self in relation that has always been preceded as a thou that is already a presence given in experience. So to transcend means I go beyond, right? So what I'm doing is I'm going beyond the self that I was, and I'm being called out of the self that I was to become a new self because of the encounter in relation with another being. And so I find no matter how soon I come into the world, I'm always preceded by somebody else. I came into this world in the pain of another being, my mother, who gave birth to me. There's never a world that I've known where I wasn't preceded by people already in the world, <laughs> okay? It's the way, the same that it always is, especially in the Society of Eternal Intelligences. We've always pre-existed this particular moment in relationship with these beings. And so the fact is, is that every time we encounter, truly encounter, instead of just experience another thou, we transcend who we are. We grow to become a new kind of a person. We grow in this relationship, and we're called out of ourselves to become a new self. And so it's the kind of growth that takes place inside of a truly meaningful, loving relationship. And of course, that means that, you know, you can't be solipsistic about that because the other transcends us and so does the self that we become in the encounter. All right, and then I'll read this and then see where it goes from there. So you say, the most characteristic facet of the experience of the heart burning and recognition is that the burning is always a realization of presence of another already given in that act of becoming conscious of experience. I discover a presence, an other, an encounter with a thou is already part of my consciousness before I create a conscious realization of this otherness. This holy other, this thou who was already present with me at the core of my being, is rediscovered every time I open my heart. I mean, you're talking about a spiritual experience here, but you're also saying that the... I mean, I know I, we, there's lots of different sayings in different cultures about kingdom of heaven is within you, uh, things like this. Is this sort of along that path, saying that some piece of God is in you or that the other's influence is there before? Remember all the talk in John about God being in us and us being in God? Very important talk. So the reality is, is God is given in our being in, in very intimate senses. And whenever we open our heart to this being who's already always with us, we discover that we're not all alone. Remember I said truth is subjectivity, this knowledge is subjective, but in this sense our subjectiveness includes the presence of another being already given in the very givenness of our reality in the world. We are already in relationship. We're already loved. This is the meaning of the statement, we love him because he loved us first. He precedes us. One cannot feel the spirit, one cannot have this kind of an experience without feeling the love of God and feeling love for others. An essential feature of this experience is this divine love that's present with it, this kind of unconditional acceptance and the kind of regard that, you know, it's like one is so enveloped and accepted by this love that it's overwhelming. And it's the kind of thing that invites us to give our own love in return to everyone that we meet. So an essential aspect of this very experience is an awareness of another who's already given in our very being, who preceded us already, who's calling us out of ourself, who's found in our heart. When I say our heart, I mean the very core of our being. It's already part of us. And so it's this kind of experience. When I say the truth is subjective, I'm saying, but it couldn't possibly be wholly subjective because what's given in the very experience itself is an experience of a, another thou who's already present in me is given my in, in my very being. I'll just let you do what you want here. Like I said, this kind of 
turns into like a, a devotional prayer of you describing this experience, I guess, and it sounds kind of a, a personal thing. When one begins to discuss this kind of relationship of love, and one is overwhelmed by this, the response that I think is called out of us is one of gratitude and worship. And so as I'm writing this, I'm called out of myself to be in this relation more authentically and more groundedly. So as I'm writing, this is the kind of thing that's, that's called forth out of me. And so I'll just read it. This is an expression of the I-Thou relationship in light of the theory of being as knowledge that I'm talking about. So I've talked about the call of the other to us, and I say that in the call of the other, I am obligated with an infinite responsibility for all others. I could never justify myself to or before this other. I'm talking about justification in the sense used by the Apostle Paul, where I'm being declared innocent and acceptable into right relationship. So the term justify here is pregnant with scriptural meaning. Rather, the on only the other could justify me if I am justified at all, because the holy other precedes me. I encounter in my heart a grace that is already given, and I am already accepted into a relationship. So this is the unconditional grace and love that is given in our relationship with God. This is justification. This is salvation by grace, if you will. Okay. Having encountered the other, I am called to a decision, an existential choice about my life and relation to the other. If I choose to remain open to otherness, and its constant call to me and its presence within me, then I commence a new life. So I have a choice here. I can either close my heart and say, oh, I'm afraid of this. It's, the responsibility is too large. What I'm seeing is overwhelming my mind, and I'm afraid to give up all of my categories and thought that makes sense of the world. I, I'm an intellectual, and I, I'll appear to be stupid, and I can't do this. And The given reality for progressives now is that, that religious people are stupid. They're just overwhelmed by dogma at least by some progressives, I don't mean all. But in our culture, to be a person who openly expresses religious belief is to be viewed as intellectually inferior. So maybe we're afraid of this, and we don't want to lose face, and we'll choose to close our hearts and close off to it. But if I choose to remain open to otherness and its constant call to me in its presence within me, I commence a new life, a new way of being in the world. In this way, I begin a life shared in relationship with another that is always already present and living in my heart. In this encounter, I am redeemed and snatched from the abyss of a self-enclosed and totally self-absorbed subjectivity that constitutes total alienation and isolation. So what I'm doing is contrasting the subjectivity of knowledge that is necessarily being with another, where the other is, is given in the very facticity and groundedness of our being and existence. I'm contrasting this with another kind of subjectivity that is alienation and isolation that is solipsism, where we remain all enclosed in our own minds, all alone in our own world, because nothing outside of us is real. Thus, I am saved by grace in the encounter. I am justified in the encounter. I am already in relationship as one accepted in right relationship by the other. That's to say, I am saved by grace. I'm justified. I'm accepted into relationship with God without any conditions and unconditional love. In this encounter, the Holy One enters into me to take up abode, to reside and dwell. You know, if one reads John 14 through 17, you'll see that the talk is that God is going to take up housing within our hearts. <laughs> He's going to be within us. And his love will be a wellspring within our own being. I'm transcended in this relationship of mutual glorification in which I am in the Holy One and the Holy One is in me. I find my presence in thy presence, in thy very being, beloved Holy One. Because now, given this knowledge, the only way to have this knowledge is to be in this presence and to be accepted into this relationship and to be on the path of sanctification, moving from one grace to another, from grace to grace, growing in the light. To be in this relationship is to be growing toward the perfect day when we share the total power, light, knowledge, intelligence, and glory with God because his glory resides in us and is growing within us. And then it begins to show in our countenance so that when others see us, they will see the light of God in us and they will see the face of Christ and we will become the messenger of Christ for them. This is what it is to be a Christian. This is what it is to have this kind of knowledge. It calls us, ironically, out of our own subjectivity to be with others in love and to serve them.
So this kind of subjectivity never ends in a solipsism, all enclosed and isolated within itself, but in a subjectivity that includes the entire world within my very being, because I am related to every other being that exists and that has ever existed. And to that extent, if every being isn't saved, my being is lessened and reduced. And I can only be fulfilled, I can only be satisfied when every being is accepted fully into love and fully glorified in the glory of God. That's what this kind of knowledge means. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.